Our scripture for this morning comes from the book of Micah in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, from chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is the final scripture we're studying in a three-week sermon series on the great passages of scripture. Uh, We refer to this as the great requirement, and I think you'll see why. I invite you to hear these words. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I was fortunate to grow up in a family who spent a lot of time on our beautiful Alabama Gulf Coast. My dad grew up in Mobile and had a deep love of all things of the sea. When I was in second grade, my folks bought a lot on a little island in Gulf Shores. Now, trust me, it was way less bougie than it sounds. Way more blood, sweat, tears, and a good bit of yelling to maintain it, keep it up, and pay for it. But we did love it. It was wonderful and magical for me as a kid. A highlight of summers spent there for my brother and I was to help put traps out to catch crabs. The ones we used look a lot like this. We would put chicken bones or fish heads or whatever gross piece of meat my mom had as leftover scraps in the trap, and then we'd lower them in to the salt water. The first thing I did every morning, usually in addition to trying to beat my brother to it, was to run down to the dock, pull up the traps to see how many crabs wandered in for an overnight snack only to find they couldn't get out. It was a little bit like the Hotel California. You could check out, you were not check, you could check in, you were never checking out. So once there were enough in the trap to make gumbo or crab omelets or whatever dish my mother had dreamed up, we would carefully transfer the bewildered now pretty ticked off crabs from the trap to a large five-gallon bucket to take them up to the house to the fate that awaited them. I hate to tell you, a very large pot of boiling water. Now, as a kid, this particular part was especially fascinating to watch. The crabs would scramble to try to get to the top of the pile to get out. But as soon as one would almost make it out, another would fight and take it down with its claws. Their sole focus was on their own individual success. Scientists have actually studied this and called it crab mentality 
or the crab bucket effect. When we focus solely on our own individual needs, it's really easy for us to fail to see the needs of others, to work together for what's a more common good. The passage Mike read a moment ago takes us into the book of Micah, one of the minor prophets you may remember that we studied last summer, where we encounter the prophet, God, and God's chosen people. Micah is consumed with anger and sadness about the future of Israel, who, like each crab in the bucket, has been thinking mostly of her own wants and desires at a great cost, the cost of a broken relationship with God. Michael Bowman started us out in this three-part mini-series a few weeks ago about the three greats of Scripture. He helped us realize the danger that exists in indifference to the great commandment. And then Pastor Mike helped us to see that if we do take the great commandment to heart, then we must take it a step further and invite others into this new life we've experienced with God in the Great Commission. Today, we land on the final great, the great requirement. We're going to look at the surrounding passages that set up these words from Micah, the actual words in the requirement, and finally the ultimate hope that we as Christ followers can see in them. Now, little is actually known about the prophet Micah. You won't find much, to be honest, on Google or in commentaries. We know he was probably a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, and his message overall is a pretty bleak one. But he does end with notes of hope, a hope of a God who never abandons his people when they're at their highest moments, but also when they're at their lowest moments. And what God asks of us in return is as deceptively simple as it is complex. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. The Israelites of Micah's day have been struggling greatly with this. We aren't told what the specific issue is. Likely, it's a combination of citations that exist in many of the prophets. Misuse of funds, worshiping idols, taking the farm fields of others who are more poor, false prophets, court corruption, greedy priests, loss of order, nothing like today. And what's worse, the Israelites are committing these acts against one another. Now, we need to actually go backwards a little bit to the very first verse to see this remarkable dialogue that occurs between Micah, God, and Israel. Although it isn't some sort of ancient Judge Judy, it is presented in courtroom fashion with creation sitting as judge and jury. Hear what the Lord says, verse 1 says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, 
For the Lord has a controversy with his people. He's got a problem with his people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, God says, what have I done to you? What have I done that has wearied you? Although Israel is the one on trial here, God is the one asking, what did I do? What have I done? It's almost as though they've forgotten the many acts of grace and saving that God has committed to them. So he reminds them of those acts. He says, I know you remember your exodus from slavery, the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I know you remember your delivery from the Moabite king, Balak, as you made your way through the dangerous wilderness. I am certain you recall how I delivered you into the promised land itself, Shittah, east of the Jordan, to Gilgal on the west. Finally, Israel gets word in. Unfortunately, their response reminds me of something I might have said as a pouting teenager who admits no guilt but always looks for a way out. What do you want from us, Yahweh? How can we even make this right now? Burnt offerings? Year-old calves? Thousands of rams? Tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Is that enough or do you want more? Then how about my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sin? The people suggest one sacrifice more extreme and extravagant than the next. They want to do something physical, something tangible to try and right that relationship. But that doesn't address what has gone wrong within lest we think we are far removed from this sin of ancient times, we try to do this some too. I'm checking all the boxes, God. I have my quiet time every day. I go to a Bible study occasionally. I make it to church most Sundays. I have a lot of Christian friends. I can even recite some scripture from memory. I attend the right kind of church and I have the right kind of worship. Yet when I see the homeless lady that always sits at the entrance of Meadowbrook, never fails, I judge her not worthy of my time, my money, or my thought. I'm irritated with the waiter who hasn't measured up to my standard of service that day, so I decide not to tip him. I make sure to let everyone know who follows me on fill-in-the-blank social media platform all my negative thoughts and research about government and politics, past or present or future, and I dare anyone to comment otherwise. When it comes to thinking beyond ourselves, it's often very difficult. Enter the voice of Micah to the nation of Israel and to us. He has told you, O mortal, he has told you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, 
to walk humbly with your God. There's a whole lot of verbs in there, people. Now, if you're anything like me, when you're told that you're required to do something, your inner rebellious child makes a nasty face. I'm required to pay taxes, but I don't really love it. As a parent of a child going to college, I am required to fill out these FAFSA forms, short for Federal Association of Student Financial Aid. There is not one short thing about it. It is akin to getting a tooth pulled with no painkiller. But this is a different kind of requirement. Some translations even use the word desire, and I really like that better. God desires these things of us, not because he requires us to love, but because he knows it's the path to peace, to righteousness, to joy for each of us and mankind. So the words themselves, to do justice, our view of law and order justice usually involves punishment doled out to those who have been wronged, those who have done wrong. The Hebrew word for justice in this passage, though, mishpat, really refers to God's order for all life. We're to order interactions with God and others in this very short span of life we have in accordance to God's will for each other and for God. And from what I've read, God is way less concerned with punishment and more concerned with those for whom justice is denied. The Israelites, in this case, being taken advantage of by one another. What's justice in our context? While it looks like the bigger political, judicial, economic challenges that we do indeed face, it also looks like many of the ministries and things that we participate in already as a church. The We Learn after-school arm of urban ministries in West End that we don't just support financially, but we have actual volunteers who go there each and every week to tutor children to ensure that they have equal, equal opportunities to learn to read that our students do. Justice is a food pantry that's open every Wednesday that doesn't say, did you do enough to earn this food to w this week? Justice is a respite ministry, helping a single mom pay a power bill because she's just behind on her bills this month. As Mike said a few weeks ago, and I loved this, what other ways can we be the church? Be, not the noun, but be the church a verb. What other ways can Asbury, can you be a lifeline in our community and in our world? Micah adds to justice to love kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's translated as mercy, but primarily is connected to covenant faithfulness. In our words, it's an unbreakable connection to God. That bond that we feel that if we are to love God makes us realize his kindness has to extend to all people. We are to care for others as he does. And lastly, Micah says, 
Being good means walking humbly with God. Now, the Hebrew word hasenia means more than just modesty or humility, which is what we often associate that word with, and those are wonderful qualities, but not quite the meaning here. It's about paying attention to God. Have you ever thought about that? It's about how we can actually watch God for what is good, be alert for what he's calling us to do. What does the Lord require of us? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. Yet time after time, we find ourselves among the Israelites, seeking our own ambitions, looking out for number one, going through the rituals and motions, but unable to see outside through a different and more merciful lens than our own. But, there's always a but, hear the good news, friends, because there is always good news. The hope in this passage comes from a loving God who saw our very desperate need for a Savior, a living, breathing embodiment of all three of the commands that we've covered. He loves us so much, he sent a human to the world to show us just how grace works, to model love that is unconditional in its mercy and unyielding in its desire to reach out. Okay, God says, you can't get it right on your own. I get it. Here is this Jesus, my son, with whom I am well pleased. Watch him emulate him. This, this is what it is about. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your might, and with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look for ways to help people. Give kindness. Walk with God, realizing we need his mercy. And then, Go and spread his message of love and grace and salvation to all the world, to anyone in your path. So, back to my friends, the crabs. In all the years, and I can't count now how many, definitely over 20, that we spent catching crabs, no matter how great the crab season was, no matter how many we caught or how full the bucket got, we never once had to put a lid on it to keep the crabs inside. They did that all on their own. They were, as that old saying goes, their own worst enemy. Luckily, I don't think that's what God has in mind for us. What Jesus showed us and God requires of us is to go against the tide of culture, against our own inner selfishness that stresses success, triumph, the importance of I. And let's start to think about we, the we that is here the we that is down the hall in William's Chapel, but most importantly, the we that is out there. 
But after all this, after all this discussion about the requirement, the actual truth is that it's not required for our salvation or for God to even love us. There's no doubt he wants to see his children, he wants to see you and me live out our faith in this way, but he does not require it to love us. Even when we fail and we will, the grace of Jesus Christ is freely given. But as we come to the table of Christ today, a living reminder of the wonder and grace of God, let us be people who love God so much that it overflows back into the world. May the people of Asbury do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God each and every day. Would you pray with me now? You are a loving Father. You give us grace and love that knows no end in sight. You ask little of us in return, but that we would show that grace throughout your kingdom. Thank you, God, for the gift of grace. Help us remain in awe as we partake of the bread and wine of our Savior Christ. Let us ever walk in your light, O God. Amen.